Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, happy Friday to you. Man, I'm excited to be here with you. We uh, had to call an audible last week and do a remix. I don't know if you heard, but uh, Gerald Briscoe gave his whole rundown of the uh, Montreal Screwjob. I thought, man, maybe we'll get 15 minutes out of Jerry. Nope. He just poured his heart out for over 90 minutes, and we got every nook and cranny there was to tell about the Montreal screw job. People really dug it last week, Bruce. Well, Jerry lived in those nooks and crannies that entire weekend. Jerry was the nook in the cranny. And boy, he just spilled the beans in a big way. Hope you guys really enjoyed it. And now we're going to talk about what happened a year prior today. One of my low key favorite pay-per-views of all time. I might even do a little viewing party at the house tonight. I might fire up survivor series, 1996, get off the popcorn and knock it out because boy, the best of times for me as a wrestling fan, it's the in-ring return of Bret Hart to the world wrestling federation. This is supposed to be according to the rumor and innuendo where Vader was going to win the world title. And of course, we're going to see the in-ring debut of what will become the greatest crossover star in wrestling history, the rock. But first, let's sort of set the stage for how we got here. We're coming off Buried Alive, which we covered last month here on the program. Brent Hart has just returned to the company, announcing his return on uh, Raw in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And now he's launched into a program with Stone Cold Steve Austin. And of course, we've discussed all of this in the archives, including almost five hours on Brent Hart in the WWF. But did you think that Brent returning was something that was necessary at that point in the battle against WCW, it was like a shot in the arm for the WWF programming to have Brett. I don't even know if it was so much about the battle itself as it was nice to have Brett back in the fold as a talent and, uh, another talent to work with. In addition to that, it was an opportunity for Steve to really get Steve's personality developed and get Steve involved in something that people can kind of sink their teeth into. So it, it was both. It was, man, we're happy to have Brett back. Um, 
to the battle at that point in time, the battle was the battle. And we were just trying to focus on our business and do what we had to do. Let's, uh, let's also add some context to, you know, the, the whole Bret Hart contract. How do you think wrestling might've been different? It's always fun to look back and say, what if? What if Brett had not come back to Vince and signed a 20 year deal? What if he had taken the WCW money in 96, how different would wrestling have wound up? Do you think? Well, you know, I mean, that's, that's a crazy, what if, because you look at just not the business aspect of it, but then you have to look at the creative aspect of it. What became of Brett returning and what became of all that strife and the whole Mr. McMahon character emerging from the Montreal screw job. Um, so the, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. It really is hard to tell. I, I think that Steve probably would have been pushed up, um, a little faster, a quicker, I don't, and I don't know that Steve would have had the had the the same effect that he had later had he not had Brett and the whole Canada versus USA uh, thing later on to work with. Well, and the double turn at WrestleMania thirteen. Right. I mean, it is interesting to look back and think, sort of, what if? Like, would Sean have been quote unquote injured and unavailable for WrestleMania thirteen? It's just, it's fascinating to look back and say, what if, but I think we could all agree. Timing is everything. Uh, the observer would write the original plan for Vader to beat Sid at buried alive, uh, and to beat Michaels for the title at survivor series Farouk and Vader were both told they had to switch the original plans and not give them the belts because JJ Dillon was at the meetings where those long-term plans were made. And since he now works for the opposition, they had to change all the storylines we knew. Buddy, that sounds like the biggest bunch of bullshit I've ever heard. Is that really the way things went down or what was told to these talents? Do you think, or is this just rumor and innuendo? That's just rumor and innuendo. I think that that's JJ trying to make himself sound important. Right. And when you JJ say JJ wasn't at those meetings, JJ wasn't involved in creative. You're saying like that. No, not at that time. Absolutely not. So Kurt Henning returns to raw after buried alive as a competitor, but it never actually happens. He winds up swerving Mark Miro and turning heel to now be triple H's new second. And then he just sort of disappears. He no shows some other appearances. And, uh, I'm sure this was frustrating for you and, and Vince and everyone involved when he winds up landing in WCW instead of the WWF, are there even whispers of, ah, gotta be that damn JJ. Uh, no, I, on Kurt. No, I, I think that Kurt, believe it or not, as great as Kurt was. And believe me, we wanted to have Kurt back in the ring. I would have loved to have had the old Kurt. I don't know that once Kurt left and was on his hiatus for a while, if you will, with the Lloyd's of London deal and doing the commentary that it wasn't the same Mr. Perfect that it was when he first came in. If we had that Mr. Perfect, man, that, that would have been a loss. But by that point, it kind of became, okay, you know what? Someone else's problem. So while Kurt may be out, there's other new talent coming in, including the former two cold Scorpio. 
He's going to debut as flash funk. I know we've briefly talked about this in the archives before, but chat me up. Whose idea is flash funk? Who was the big advocate for Scorpio and uh, how did the deal come to be? And just tell me about this character, the Funkettes. I mean, this seems like something Vince would have enjoyed that has stand back all over it. Flash Funk, he is so funky. I don't know how it goes, but I know it's Flash Funk. And then it gets into funky and it got all into funky and funkiness and everything. It was from a meeting that we had with Scorpio and uh, Scorpio had his wife there. Vince asked, you know, man, what do you do? What do you do? Well, what do you enjoy? And flash signals, man, goes, uh, his wife says, Oh, he's a great dancer. He loves to dance. And that immediately, you know, perked everybody up. It's like, Oh, okay. So are you know, are you really a good dancer? And he's like, yeah, he goes, I'm a great dancer, man. He goes, I, he kind of saw himself as, um, Rick James, in a lot of respects and just, you know, kind of, kind of, well, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm flashy and, you know, I really like funky music and everything. And man, by the time that those words were coming out of his mouth, he was flash funk. Now, it could have been a, uh, uh, a funk brother from, you never really know, but, but it was because he was flashy and he was funky. Okay. He became flash funk. And you don't think he was related to Dory or Terry. I mean, you're not sure, but you don't think I'm not sure, but I don't think so. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, we're also coming off Terry Gordy's debut as the executioner. Of course he popped up at buried alive. How quickly did you realize hey, it was worth a try, but unfortunately this is not the Terry Gordy of old. Yeah. Unfortunately, right off the bat, man, because Terry had to continually be reminded what he was doing, why he was doing it, who he was just in general. Um, it wasn't the Terry Gordy that we knew and loved. It wasn't the Terry Gordy of old that you said, all right, bam, bam, here's what we're doing. We're like, yep, got it. And we could go out and do it. You had to tell him over and over again, and he had to be reminded. It was, it was unfortunately a shell of Terry Gordy by this point in his career. Had it actually went well, the way you maybe had hoped, was it discussed even briefly? Hey, what if we paired up cactus and Terry Gordy? I mean, a Foley Gordy tag team sounds really fun, but if that would have happened, who would undertaker's partner have been, or what were some of the hypothetical plans, I guess, for, for the, the executioner persona? Yeah, there were none, uh, because it was, it was strictly for more than anything. In a lot of ways, it was a favor to Michael and it was a favor to bam, bam, to see what we had. And in the preliminary meetings with Terry, I think he kind of knew then even that Terry was, was not, was not all there, unfortunately. So it was, it was trial. There were no, okay, Hey, and if this takes off, this is what we can do. Yeah. We, we looked at, he could be in, uh, mankind's corner or something like that, but 
that wasn't, hey, they're going to be a team. He's going to be a part of this stable or anything like that. Here's a neat little note I found from the observer. Occam Albrecht is in camp already hates taking bumps. So they put a mattress in the ring for him to learn the moves on. This of course is going to be Brockus who didn't really last long in the world wrestling federation, but was this a sign? Is this even true? Did you hear this from your brother that boy, this, you know, we, we've heard like Kurt angle, right? He would quote unquote, attack the mat. Doesn't sound like old Brackus really did that. Uh, what were you hearing about this? Well, no, Brackus didn't come from the world of, he came from the world of bodybuilding and, uh, was recruited by Shane McMahon. So he really didn't have any idea of what the business was about, nor the physical toll that it takes on the body. So wouldn't surprise me at all if, if Occam didn't really like taking bumps. I don't know that anybody likes taking bumps at first. So, you know, they're different training methods or they, they put a mat. We definitely didn't put a mattress in there, probably put a crash pad in there. But if anything, that was just to, to get them comfortable freely falling. Cause after a while you, you've got to do it. You just have to, you got to attack the mat. That's what you have to do. If you can't embrace taking a bump, then going to be a tough, you need to reevaluate your career choices. In the meantime, Roddy Piper's doing a little bit of the same reevaluating his career choices. He debuts for world championship wrestling at the end of their Halloween havoc pay-per-view. You've told us before the story of, uh, some of you guys really being sort of caught off guard when Vince sits you down and says, macho man's gone. He signed with WCW and, and never came back and here Roddy Piper shows up at the end of Halloween havoc. Were you also caught off guard by this? Did Vince know? What do you recall? No, we didn't know. And I'd spoken to Roddy, I guess I know definitely the week before about coming back with us. So I was caught off guard and Roddy didn't I, look, I never asked him the question. I never said, Hey man, are you, uh, going to WCW? I never asked him that question. And maybe subconsciously I didn't ask him that question because I didn't want to force him to lie to me. And I don't know if he would have lied to me, frankly. Um, but he didn't tell me. I do know that. He had an opportunity to tell me, several opportunities to tell me uh, that entire week because we were in talks with him about bringing him back and doing something with him during that time as well. It's, it's fascinating to look back at Piper's 96, because here he is, you know, the commissioner and then has the whole, you know, Hollywood backlot brawl or what have you at WrestleMania 12. Then he pops up at the end of, uh, Halloween havoc to go toe to toe with Hulk Hogan and then main event Starcade against Hogan pretty big time year for Roddy Piper, but it feels like there's no communication. Does Vince feel a sense of betrayal or do you, I mean, you're longtime friends with Roddy Piper and I know you said, well, I didn't straight up ask the question, but did you feel a certain type of way? I did. Uh, yeah, I gotta tell you because you know, Rodney and I had a pretty good relationship and as I say, I don't know if it was gut telling me that man could Roddy show up. It, and when I say that, I had no inkling. I was completely caught off guard when Roddy showed up at WCW. Um, I was hurt. I felt 
a little betrayed because I had been talking to Hot Rod again that whole week and about other things that we wanted to do with him. Um, so betrayed is is a word, but but just hurt, I guess, more than anything that he couldn't have said, "Hey, Bruce, I'm I'm going to WCW. I'll be on I'll be on their show this week." In the past, I think Roddy, you know, would tell me shit like that and, and say, listen, man, this is what I'm going to do and uh, and leave it there. Nothing, you know, he would say, listen, there's nothing you can do about this. I'm, I'm not going to come back. I'm not going to do this. I'm, this is what I'm going to do. And Roddy had that opportunity to tell me that. And again, I never asked the question. I never said, hey, man, are you going to WCW? Didn't do that. I, uh... I left it with, look, man, we'd like to bring you back and we'd like to do some things with you. And it's kind of where we were. Ultimately one day he does work with you guys again. Did you have a conversation at the end about, Hey man, sure do wish you would have, or is it just sort of water under the bridge? I had a conversation with him the next week. I mean, I talked to him after he appeared on their pay-per-view and just said, you know, Hey, goddamn man, you think you could have told me? And he says, he decided he wanted to put you in that position. Yeah. And I said, I appreciate that. I said, but you put me in a, you put me in a more awkward position with the surprise. And you know, he had to do what he had to do. I had to do what I had to do. They have the classic Steve Austin, Brian Pillman angle on superstars that happens to put, uh, Pillman on the shelf. He's going to need yet another ankle surgery. Uh, so we've got to have a way to explain that. So we put his uh, ankle inside of a folding chair and, and Steve Austin jumps off and continues to attack that ankle. Um, and then we do the whole gun thing. And we've talked about that in long form. It's available in the archives. It's something to wrestle.com, but. How important do you think, I mean, when I I talked to Jim Ross about this, not too long ago, and he says, he thinks you could circle that angle, the whole Brian Pillman breaking and entering stone cold, Steve Austin pistol angle that happened on raw. And you could say that was the moment where the business turned more entertainment. I thought that was interesting that that's sort of JR's perception that maybe that's when it got more entertainment, less in-ring product. Would you agree with that assessment in hindsight? Well, I think that there are no, I mean, not, not that. I think that the whole Hulk Hogan rock and wrestling era is where the entertainment aspect came into the business. I think as far as the angle with Pillman and Austin in his home, that the drama and for the raw television product at the time where it became more about the drama and, and more uh, about the story and outside of the ring than in the ring. But I think that the entertainment aspect has been there since rock and wrestling. Uh, to me, it's always been there, but this was a dramatic event. It was, it was something that was extremely unusual, especially for our genre that, kind of shock people out of their seats to where they're like, holy shit, am I seeing what I'm, what I'm seeing? 
and you know the whole night going back and forth and steve circling the house and beating the shit out of pillman's uh friends and the in the wade pool and things like that it was um as intense as it was on television it was equally as intense from a production standpoint from being there and, and producing that and getting us to that point and during it holy shit i mean i i'm on right on the inside of that door that Steve is trying to bash in that we discovered uh, was a shatterproof, you know, non-breakable glass in the door that, guess what? It wasn't unbreakable. And so when all was said and done and they realized, well, man, this is uh, unbreakable glass. This is that secure glass. I said, well, Brian... At least we know who's paying for your new door. I said, I'll take this back to them. I said, hey, motherfuckers, this is what a baseball bat did. So, you know, it was it was crazy. And I'm thinking, shit, we're live. I don't have a monitor. So I don't know what cameras are where. I can't even go over and open the door for him. Wow. And it, it was it was intense. But I think as far as the drama and out of the ring, um, that was, it was a, it was a big point, but I don't know that that was the one pivotal thing, but yes, it was definitely a big point. I would agree with that. This mother's day and father's day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time. And when I say every time, I mean it, I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple, too. All we needed was a a picture from our phone. Boom, we're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. 
Now to get this special offer, just text the word wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four. That's wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four text wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's journey, the free to play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Let's uh let's talk a little bit about a Fort Wayne the Fort Wayne show. This is where Bret Hart comes back. But backstage, we have a pretty scary incident. Chief J Strongbow had what he thought at the time was a heart attack and he's found slumped over while sitting in a chair. Do you remember this little scary moment? I I do. I just remember it from the standpoint of that's not right. And Chief being taken away and and people thinking, oh man, he must have had a heart attack. And at that time, I don't think it was a heart attack. I think it was just more of a, not even a panic attack, but chief wasn't doing well at the time. Chief was, was not that healthy. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about Chris Candido, a lot of talent back, back and forth between ECW and the WWF at the time, of course, Scorpio coming over from ECW. Well, Chris Candido wants to go the other way. He quits the WWF. Uh, and, uh, I guess the company asked for him to stay on as a teacher and try to help train some guys, but he's only 24 years old and he decides to leave a lot of rumor and innuendo. I think he was just frustrated with his spot on the card, the backstage area, his relationship probably had a lot of stuff going on in his life. What do you remember about Candido, uh, trying to move on here? Well, Chris had a future and I think that in Chris's mind, Chris's future was the heavyweight champion and and Chris wanted to be the top guy 20 years later. I think Chris probably could have achieved that. I don't think that it was in the cards that that place in time for Chris Candido. Chris was a tremendous worker, a great talent, but he also saw himself as 10 feet tall and indestructible. And Chris thought that he should, should not be a top guy, that he should be the top guy, which attitude wise, I think everyone should have that attitude, right? And get anybody that, that goes into the ring, anybody that wants to get in the business. If you don't want to be the best, then what's the point? I, I guess, okay, well I can go punch, you know, punch the clock and do my time. Chris didn't want to just punch the clock. Right. And there was an opportunity, you know, when we looked at guys that could really help and help teach people, Chris was one of those young, younger talent that could do that. And looking at it as a, Hey man, here's an opportunity for longevity in the business where you don't have to take as many bumps anymore, but you do have, uh, the ability and we didn't know whether or not he could actually teach or not, 
but he definitely had the ability and he definitely uh, had the wherewithal, but Chris just wanted to move on. Chris wanted to go somewhere where he could be the top guy. And it was as simple as that. So ECW, it is Phil LaFon and Doug Furness are going to finish up there in ECW though, to join the WWF. Um, you know, Phil LaFon and Doug Furness. I mean, this feels like a team that Jim Ross would have really pushed for, especially given Doug's amateur background at Tennessee. Do you remember how they came in? Who was an advocate for them and whatnot? You know, we all were really. And I think that, you know, yes, JR had an affinity for, for Doug because of his amateur background, as you put it. But I think that overall there was a bit of, um, romanticizing of, of, of getting these guys when you looked to the outside and you look to Japan and you look to guys that hadn't been exposed on American television and hadn't really been in the territory system. Doug had to a point, but definitely uh, Phil had not. It was attractive and you looked at, well, maybe these guys could come in and immediately be different and be a unique attraction in the tag team division. But it just really didn't, you know, it didn't click. And, and I think that the, the hype didn't match the product that we got. Well, we're going to talk about them a little later. I'm sure. Um, do you think they would have had a different fate as single stars? I mean, do you think there was some upward mobility with Doug? It feels like a lot of people talk about Doug as if he was this freak athlete. And I'm not arguing that he wasn't, I'm just trying to understand. Do you think there was an opportunity to do something a little different there? I think Doug was a freak athlete that, you know, Doug was a stud. Holy cow, man. Um, Doug was a unique athlete too. I just don't know that Doug had the personality to connect with the audience and be that mega star. He had mega ability. He had mega talent, mega strength, all of that. However, connecting to the audience, he didn't have that, that connection to the audience. He really didn't. Um, and it was a shame because you look at, you look at him standing there. It's like, Holy cow. Um, this guy is, looks like a monster. But his personality and promo didn't didn't say, "Hey, I'm a monster killer." His personality and, and promo was, "Hey, I'm a pretty good guy and uh, I'm a, I'm strong as shit," <laughs> you know. And yeah, I don't I don't think that they I don't think that they would have gotten in the door as singles, frankly. The raw show with uh, Pillman and Austin that we briefly touched on a minute ago, I forgot to mention, this is the first time we see them in the new 8 PM time slot. Uh, the rumor in innuendo is this is to combat nitro because nitro had gotten the jump on you guys. Tell me about the move. What you remember about this? I mean, this is long. I mean, the WWF has had a way of doing business with raw for years at this point. And now it feels like we're, we're changing things a little bit. What do you remember about that? Well, change was in the air all, all over the place and nitro had gone head up with us. Nitro moved. So we looked at it as, okay, well, 
the way to do it is is move head up with them as well. Don't let them get the jump on you. It was as simple as that. Um, I know Bonnie Hammer at the time was with USA, and that was something that Bonnie came to us with and said, well, then let's move move the time slot. Let's move it and do uh, something else. And it would evolve into not only that, but it would eventually move into two separate shows. You know, you'd have Raw is War and then the War Zone. It, you know, two different shows that would go 8 to 9, 9 to 10. So it was it was just a matter of USA wants more. Well, let's go. Let's, uh, let's also talk about the USA backlash. If there was from the whole gun angle, I mean, here you are on the one hand trying to, Hey, this is an opportunity. We're going to have more programming. USA is loving it. You know, they're ready to sort of have our back in this fight against WCW and TNT, but it felt like on the, the heels of the gun thing, they were not exactly thrilled. What can you tell us about that? This is back when Bonnie Hammer was running things, right? Yes. Well, I don't know that USA wasn't thrilled with the gun stuff. I just know that Vince was out front, like on Livewire and things like that, apologizing, saying it would never happen again. And they took it too far and all that. And that doesn't feel like, I don't, I don't just reckon Vince wakes up every day and says, who can I bend the knee for today? It feels no, as it. Yeah, I think it was more advertisers and more outside of the our world, if you will. But it wasn't something that I think USA kind of liked the controversy, and advertisers didn't. You know, people on the outside world and, and our other partners weren't crazy about it at all. So uh, you know, it was the right thing to do. But I think that deep down, I think. USA and Bonnie kind of liked the controversy and liked that we were getting out there and getting people talking about us would have preferred it in other ways, <laughs> but well, is what it is. You're going to run to some of that controversy and, and, and people talking with the concept for shotgun Saturday night. This is the era where we start to formulate some of these ideas. Uh, I know you've told us before, but briefly tell us how does the, the concept for shotgun Saturday night come together and, and who's really sort of waving the flag for that? Well, Vince was looking at doing another live, you know, uh, Saturday night show and back in, back in the day, long before your time, Conrad, there was a Saturday night special and Saturday night special was hosted by Wolfman Jack. It's a music show. So um, it was a song, Saturday Night Special and, and what have you. But he's like, man, what if, you know, we were we were live? What if we were live midnight, you know, Saturday night? Man, that's when all the shit's happening. You know, that's when the ghosts and goblins come out, for lack of a better term. But it, it's, man, shit just gets kicking at midnight. For a lot of people on Saturday night, especially in New York. So the idea became do a, do a live show, but not just any live show. We, we were looking at, um, you ever see the movie paradise alley? Yep. Okay. We, we were kind of looking at that concept, almost club wrestling where 
you know, it was a, it was a feature at, at nightclubs and then like the, the ring goes down and then everybody starts, you know, dancing and going crazy and all this shit. Or you have the club atmosphere literally taking place all around what you're doing. So we looked at how many nightclubs could we get? And we were concentrating on, on New York. You know, this was going to be a New York centric television show that came live from a different hot hip nightclub every week. And looking at it, we, we thought, well, shit, we could probably do it from a different one. I bet at least for half the year, and then you could kind of repeat afterwards and, and then travel came up. <laughs> I think the first one was San Antonio where it's like, oh shit, man, we've got a pay-per-view. Right. We've got to have everybody there. What are we going to do? And that's when we did Denim and Diamonds in, in San Antonio was the first one that we did on the road. And again, that, that was live 11 o'clock in, in San Antonio for the midnight New York airing. But it was, it was just a different concept and he wanted to be live kind of without a net thought that we could get away with a little bit more on a Saturday night at midnight than you could in syndication generally and or maybe even more so than we could get away with uh on USA in primetime. And some of those ideas included in a gold dust match, Marlena would flash the Sultan. Of course, she was covered up, but with her back to the camera, it looked like, wow, she just dropped her top. And then of course, famously at Denim and Diamonds out in San Antonio as you like to call it. Uh, is there any memorable lines from Terry Funk that night that, that come to mind? Did Junior send you in here to tell me not to curse or say anything controversial, Pritchard? Your mother's a whore! Yeah, that was great. <sighs> Let's talk about, uh, your mother's a whore. <laughs> I know how to get you going in the morning. Uh, your my, mother, my personal mother is a whore. Okay. All right. Good to know. Uh, the story going around is that Mark Henry would break his leg when he's training, bouncing off the ropes. So he's not going to be a part of survivor series. That was the original plan. <laughs> Do you, you should ask my brother to describe that sometime. I would love to hear what you heard from your brother. It's telephone, telegram, tell a brother here. Oh no, it was, we had a huge company meeting and we used to do these big company meetings off site because, um, we didn't have any place big enough in the office to assemble everyone right from the studio and all the office and everything. So we would go to like a, a ballroom in a, at the Sheridan hotel down the road and have this meeting. So as soon as the meeting broke, it was late in the afternoon and most everybody, you know, was going home from there. Well, I head back to the studio to just go check on the guy's training. And as I pull into the studio, I see the, uh, fire trucks and the ambulances. Oh and gosh all this shit going on. I'm like, Oh my God, what the hell? What the fuck's going on? Oh my God. So I zip in and I park right up in front and run in and Tom's there and he's pissed. I'm like, what the, what the hell happened? What happened? He goes, 
Mark broke his fucking leg. How? What the? Uh, what are you guys doing that, that he broke his leg? And he looks at me, and he's quiet for a second, but then he just borks out and goes, he was running the ropes! How do you break your leg running the ropes? Because I don't know. We were running the ropes, and then bam, he broke his leg. And he's laying there, and he can't get up, and his leg is broken. And I goes, Jesus Christ. Because they had to call the fire department to get him up. And, yeah, Mark broke his leg running the ropes. Jeez. It must have been well, a Well, that's a lot of weight, you know, going on. And I think Mark planted. Right. We saw the tape. It just looks like he planted and his leg snapped. My God. And, and so now you've got this huge monster of a man on the mat with a broken leg. How are you going to move him? Right. Call the fire department. My goodness. Well, uh, and then, so, so now you were talking about Occam Albrecht, right? Yeah. Um, Occam and Mark were roommates. Okay. So we got Mark to the hospital and wait, why Mark couldn't got, Occam just lift him up? I mean, he's a power lifter. He was a bodybuilder. There's yeah, a difference. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, we get Mark back from the hospital and everything. He's, he's all cast and, and get him up to the room. And it's, you know, at this point it's kind of funny because it's not, you know, it's serious. He's, he's going to be serious. okay. Right, right. He's right. going to be okay. Yeah. And, uh, Mark looks at, at Occam and, Mark and Occam couldn't have been two more opposite people to be roommates. It was like the odd couple. <laughs> and Mark just looked at him and goes, man, could you please get me some McDonald's? And now Occam eats dry chicken breasts and, and pasta, and yeah. that's all he eats type thing. He's probably never he, been in a McDonald's. Yeah, he's like, he says, fine, I get you McDonald's, but no milkshake. <laughs> just now Occam's like, all right, you, you know, you're going to eat better now. You're not getting any milkshake. I'll get you McDonald's just because you're hurt right now. And I'm going to get you McDonald's. But, oh God. It was, it was, I popped. I just almost it, fell on the floor laughing, I mean, but no milkshake, <laughs> no milkshake for you. No milkshake. I don't care. Strawberry banana, no milkshake. It's funny. Lord have mercy. Uh, we also see, could, could I get an apple pie? <laughs> <laughs> so no, he didn't say that. We see, some he didn't even ask for, for a milkshake, which was funny too. He yeah. just wanted McDonald's. You know what I mean? Like he wanted some comfort food. He wanted, you know, wanted something right then and there and comfort food. Make me feel better, man. He didn't even ask for a milkshake. My, no milkshake. Not in my house. No water for you. If I must bring it to you, it must be healthy. So we're running some no milkshake. Uh, running some vignettes view of Rocky Mavia. <laughs> and of course, as we do that, we're highlighting his family's history in the business. How excited was Vince? You know, Vince is sort of old school. He likes to, you know, the family crest and whatnot, the heritage and for years and years, really, I mean, his dad's promotion was based on people's heritages, right? And so now when you've got a third generation superstar and 
maybe the first one, Vince has to be over the moon with this concept, right? Not really. You know, it's, it's funny. Vince sometimes will view a, a second generation wrestler is always being compared to the first generation and, and to their father. And nine times out of 10, you, you can't live up to that. No one can a lot of times because people remember their family fondly. So it was a little hesitant. Third generation is a little different. You know, rock was the first and, and rock was unique. Um, you know, everybody called him Dewey, uh, short for Dwayne. I think that that was his, his name. And I know when I was first introduced to him, you know, by Pat Patterson, it was Dewey. Uh, and, and rock hated that, uh, didn't want to be called Dewey. You know, was, you know my name's Dwayne and, so trying to come up to, to, I think it was Cornette that, that finally came up with, you know, we, we were, we were thinking, can we take a combination of both names, you know, Rocky Johnson, and Peter Maivia and came up with Rocky Maivia. And I think that was Cornette that came actually came up with that name to, to merge, merge his father, and his grandfather together and, and, and take that name. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. His first appearance on WWF TV, he being Rocky Maivia, pronouns pal, was being at ringside for Mark Merrow versus Razor Ramon on Raw. Of course, this is the fake Razor, uh, kind of anticlimactic for the Rock. I'm fake about it. I was Razor. All righty. Here's from the Observer. Uh, in his first show as a commentator on Superstars, Jim Cornette told a joke about how a burglar broke into Sable's house and she screamed rape, and the burglar screamed no. A few minutes later, Jim Ross apologized for the joke saying Titan doesn't want to make light of domestic violence. Cornette then very sarcastically apologized saying he'd never want to offend anyone and thanked Ross for taking him off live wire, which he called the, my mother, the car of wrestling TV shows. At this point was Cornette's frustration with his WWF experience just at an all time high. At this point, no, didn't, it didn't get to a <laughs> all time high point of frustration until Vince Russo entered the, uh, fray, you know, clearly he's, um, he's not loving Connecticut and it doesn't feel like he loves the live wire concept and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, did, at any point, do you remember here in late 96, especially 
just add the other context of the whole Shawn Michaels Vader thing. This feels like he would have started, uh, Hey man, I got to get home. Is that sort of talk? I mean, as your friend, or is he sort of expressing that to you? Just real frustration with, with what the way things are going here. Frustration. No hatred. Yes. Okay. Um, but yeah, corny never liked the, the Northeast on the day he stepped in it. Yeah. He, he did not like it here. He didn't like the, do you want your sandwich on a hard roll? No, I want it on a soft roll. God damn it. I want it soft and fresh. I don't understand what you, you're, you're goddamn. Why do you people like hard bread? Hurts my teeth. Like soft bread. Oh, soft roll. But he really does become fucker. A little bit like Jack of all trades here. I mean, he's a manager. He's going to do live wire. He's going to do commentary. He's the guy who actually steps in for perfect when perfect no shows the recording. Um, so he is, you know, a Jack of all trades. And I guess still is, uh, the plan all along was for Shawn Michaels to drop the title at survivor series and then win it back at the Royal rumble in San Antonio, or at least that's the rumor and innuendo. The result we know is going to be a fantastic match with Sid and Sean. Do you ever think back in hindsight about what if that wouldn't have happened? Do you think the New York audience would have embraced Vader the way they did Sid? No, I don't. I think that, um, because he's a WCW guy or just because of the presentation, because of the presentation, I think that part of look, Sid, man, Sid was Sid. Sid was charismatic as hell and a damn interesting character. So Sid, Sid looked that monster part. And I think that by that time in his career, Leon, Leon wasn't what he was before. Right. At this point in his career, it just, he just wasn't, he was a little bit less than he, he was Vader light. It's reported in the observer that there were talks and discussions with Randy Savage of all people, but the sides were far apart on the terms as the story goes. I think, uh, he was looking for a contract extension from Eric Bischoff and WCW around that Halloween havoc time period. And allegedly that's when there were some conversations about what if he came back, uh, the observer would write the feeling is that Titan is so fearful of raids that they only want guys that they can sign for three to five year contracts. And the feeling is that Savage may help in the short run because of his name, but his guarantee would be so high and they wouldn't want him on top for so long. It makes no sense to sign him long-term and they don't want him on TV for one year and then have him go back to WCW when the deal is up either. This is something that's not talked about a lot. It feels like a lot of people assume that when, when he walked out on Vince, quote unquote, back in the day and first joined WCW, there was never an opportunity to come back. But here in our research, it looks like 1996 in the fall here, perhaps there was an opportunity. Do you remember there being the discussion about, you know, Vince wants three to five years and maybe Randy wasn't worth that. Well, first of all, uh, to that business wise, you don't want to invest in anybody for a short term. You want to invest in people that you've got a long-term investment in so that you get a return on your investment. That's just business in general during this time. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was talking to Randy and his people, so we were going back and forth and 
the ask became ridiculous and it didn't start out ridiculous. It actually started out, um, fair in, in my opinion. So, you know, we went back and forth and I think that Randy kind of felt that he could get more on the other side. And I said, look, if, if this is just a, a tool to get more on the other side, you know, tell them whatever you want to tell them. Right. If you don't want to be here, don't, don't, let's not do this exercise. And he was like, no, no, no. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to come back. I, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here with Hogan. I don't want to be here with Bischoff. I, I don't like him. Uh, I want to be back there. You know, it, it's all that other shit. But then it just became kind of a, a ridiculous ask. And I think that more than anything at that point, I would have loved to have had Randy. I just think that Randy was using us as a tool to get a better deal in WCW. Were you the intermediary? Were you the go between? Was Randy not talking directly to Vince? No, it was all me. Okay. Uh, no, and no one, and, and no one knew that. And no one even knew that we were having those discussions. The only person on our side that knew was, um, Vince and, uh, our friend, Aaron, no, uh, Neville Meyer. I was <laughs> Aaron Neville. That's funny. <laughs> I don't know why Aaron Neville got to know what our business is, but, uh, Neville Meyer, uh, knew and Vince knew and that was it. What was the routine for communicating with Randy? Was Randy on the quote unquote wrestler schedule? He'd call the house late at night or whatnot. No, we would pretty much talk all the time. Okay. I guess what I'm driving at is he calls you at the house. He calls you at the office. Is there a routine where you knew like, Hey, here's my Randy time. He usually checks in on so-and-so day or such and such time. No, we, I mean, we had times that we would call, but it would be office house, whatever. Okay. So yeah, but it would be like, Hey, I'm gonna call you, uh, call you at two o'clock on Tuesday. And that's what we did. So the night before the survivor series, you guys bring back the hall of fame and it's at the Marriott Marquis hotel. Uh, this isn't the event that it is now, but it was a pretty cool little deal here at the Marriott Marquis. It's the first time that fans were allowed the opportunity to attend gorilla monsoon goes in, uh, to, uh, induct the Baron, uh, Joe Franklin is a radio host and he's going to induct captain Lou Albano. Uh, Don Morocco is going to be here to induct Jimmy Superfly Snuka. Arnie Scotland is going to induct Johnny Rods. Uh, Hunter Hurst Helmsley will induct Killer Kowalski. Bret Hart introduces and inducts Pat Patterson. I'm going to take a timeout right there. This was so special to your pal Pat. And it really was a cool moment where. He really publicly, maybe for the first time, gives a shout out to Louie. Uh, you were there that night. What do you remember about this hall of fame and this special moment for your friend, Pat? Uh, it was, it was emotional. It was first of all, well-deserved for Patrick. And I think that it was the fact we were in New York was special, you know, it was being in the garden and, and all of that. But, uh, Pat taking his rightful place in the hall of fame. And it was also a time for Pat to publicly recognize his life partner in Louie. And that was a huge deal to Pat. And it was a scary moment for Pat 
because, you know, Pat Patterson's being gay was the worst kept secret in the business. You know, it was like the, the open secret that everyone knew, but, uh, Pat thought no one knew. Right. And it was, he was universally loved and his preference in life had nothing to do with, with anything. Um, as I've stated so many times, my, my love for Pat Patterson and, and the teachings that, that Pat helped me with, um, in life in general that I'll never, ever forget. And he was, he was my best friend. So yeah, it, it was, it was a special, special night. And I know that Pat really, Pat really wanted Brett to introduce him because Pat saw Brett as the kind of worker that he loved. And he, and Pat really, really loved working with Brett and just thought Brett was a special talent. So, um, he had requested Brett to do the induction. Um, I think that he probably would have, would have wanted Vince. And I, I don't think that, I don't think he wanted to, you know, I don't think he wanted to make that ask. And I think Vince would have done it in a heartbeat, but there was also the, the fact that, uh, Vince's father was being inducted that night. And so kind of, kind of became a little tricky and, and Pat went with Brett. I want to mention that because Shane McMahon inducts Vincent J McMahon, of course, posthumously, unfortunately, Mr. McMahon's father is no longer with us here by 1996, but what a special night this was for Vince, right? I mean, his right-hand man of all these years, Pat Patterson, and his, he has his son induct his dad. Wow. Uh, what do you remember about his father's induction and the speech that Shane gave here again, it was also emotional. I never had the opportunity to meet Vince's dad. So, you know, I didn't come in until 1987 and his dad had since passed. Uh, everything that I know about Vincent J McMahon, I know from Vince and of course other people that have worked around him, but the majority of it, uh, I knew from Vince and it was, it was highly emotional and one of those things where Vince doesn't always like Vince doesn't like to be recognized. He feels the company should take the recognition, not him personally, because to him, it, it is all about everybody in the company and not just him. Right. So it was, it was a crazy, crazy out of pace. Uh, it was a crazy night. Did you prefer that style of hall of fame versus the more traditional television show we're used to now? Well, this one was a dinner. Yeah. Um, you know, the first few were, were kind of like those sit down dinners at the hotels and things. I don't know. I, I I'm a fan of the shorter ones. I, I'm a fan <laughs> we of, all uh, are. We all, huh? we all are the yeah. damn six hour hall of fame needs to not be a thing. We agree, man. You know, and I think, uh, Lou Albano kind of did it here a little bit, but, but not nearly as bad. Superstar Billy Graham was the first one that, that got up and, and did the hour and a half acceptance speech and just everybody's 
can I sneak out and order room service or, you know, um, yeah, those long speeches are brutal. They're just brutal. So I, I prefer the shorter. Yeah. Let's get to it. And, uh, thank you very much. It's an honor and God bless you all. And we'll see you later. The British Bulldog and Owen Hart would induct the Valiant Brothers, Jimmy and Johnny. They're going to be the first tag team inducted. And now it's time for Madison Square Garden. It's time for the Survivor Series. Here we are. It's a sellout show, Bruce. Uh, well, I guess it's 900 tickets short, but still, we'll count it. There's 18,647 fans in the building. Pretty good gate at the time, too. $529,522. When I say pretty good, it's the second largest gate in North America. So you have to be pretty happy with this. I mean, this, although it's not a WrestleMania, it's your home market. It's uh, New York city. It's Madison square garden. It's a huge gate. It's a near sellout. Brett's back in the fold. Vince's dad's in the hall of fame. Pat Patterson's in the hall of fame. This has to be just a great weekend here, right? It was, it was a great weekend and it was an emotional one as well. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun and, and culminating in the garden. Uh, there's a pre-show in this day. You still had the free for all, right? So you had an opportunity because it was free for all. all. Yeah. Gratis as Owen Hart used to say, that means you pay nothing. <laughs> Gratis. So we've got, uh, Je- the road dog, Jesse James here. We've got, uh, Aldo Montoya. We've got Bob Holly and Bart Gunn on one side of our survivor series pre-show match on the other side. We've got the Sultan, Justin Hawk, Bradshaw, Salvatore sincere and Billy Gunn, who was, uh, you know, in this rockabilly era, we're about to be, uh, enjoying a main event anywhere in the country right now. Are we not? Are you damn right. Yeah. Anywhere, anywhere in, in that country. Sure. In a country, uh, but you know, besides the, of Albania, the, this is a different era, right? You're selling pay-per-views. You're trying to get people to vote with their wallet and come out of pocket for 29 95 or what have you. November is not necessarily the, the best opportunity for WCW to sell a pay-per-view because they've got the world war three concept and it's okay, I guess, but they're trying to load it up with the contract signing of Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan. And you guys are pulling out all the big stops here for survivor series in Madison square garden, the very same month, the readers of the wrestling observer, they actually dug this. They gave it 67.7% thumbs up. I agree. Love this show. The actual show itself starts with the Godwins, Furnace, and LaFon taking on Owen Hart, Davey Boy, Leaf Cassidy, and Marty Jannetty. Of course, the new rockers. There you go. They go 20 minutes. And Meltzer would say the match was designed to get LaFon and Furnace, who were billed as a former Asian tag team champion team, over as the uh, new top contenders for the tag titles. And he says there was some nice wrestling early on particularly when Cassidy, who we know was Al snow was in Janetti was limping badly, having suffered some kind of foot injury, which I would guess was an ankle. Uh, Henry Godwin would pin Janetti at eight minutes and 12 seconds after the slop drop. Owen Hart would pin Henry in six seconds after a spin kick. And then we would see Davy boy pin Phineas in 46 seconds with a power slam. 
LaFon pins Cassidy in 439 with a backward suplex. And uh, now that leaves the tag champs versus the new team. And the new team wins straight falls. LaFon pins Smith. And uh, what do you know? Eventually, Furnace and LaFon are the ones left standing. Three and a quarter stars. So a nice little way to showcase there's a new tag team and let them rub up against some established stars like Owen and Davey. You watched this for the first time in 25 years. What did you think? Well, it was a damn entertaining match. And again, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. And that was to showcase Furnace and LaFon and their first big marquee match. And they did that. I, I still think that you look at, you know, you look at the reaction too of the crowd. It was put on first. Yeah. On the pay-per-view. Yeah. So you're going to get that hot reaction and in position them in a way where it was very difficult to fail and they delivered and Doug Furnace's drop kicks, Jesus Christ. Um, I wish, I wish they're a thing of beauty. You know, you, you go back and you look at guys, you know, Kevin Von Eric could throw carries was better than Kevin's actually. But you look at guys that, that used to throw those beautiful drop kicks and shit and Mil Moskers comes to mind. And, and Furnace is one of those guys that had an incredible drop kick that got up in the air and actually kicked somebody when he got up there. I'm interested in talking about Furnace and LaFine and maybe why they didn't connect. Uh, much has been written about working a quote unquote WWE or WWF style. And it felt like these guys were doing exactly what worked for them in Japan, but maybe this American audience didn't gravitate to it was. Why do you think the fans, I mean, I clearly you're uh, on the inside. You can see the real wrestling talent of the tag team, but for every reason, like kids weren't showing up wearing furnace and LaFon t-shirts, like maybe they would have a generation before. Um, why do you think they didn't connect as well as maybe you would have originally hoped a combination. I think it was a combination of, I, I don't know that their in ring work is much but their promos definitely didn't connect with anybody and their personalities didn't connect with the audience. There wasn't time for, for the audience to get behind them. They, they never really felt that they were in trouble. You know, heat was short. Um, it just didn't, I don't know. They just didn't, they just really didn't connect with the audience. The audience didn't care. Right. Well, um, let's talk about what's really become a forgotten match in a pretty legendary feud. It's the undertaker and mankind. And here we're going to have Paul Bearer in a cage hung above the ring, which is like old school. I guess the first time I remember seeing this is with JJ Dillon. Uh, but I think it was commonly referred to as a shark cage. Uh, when do you first remember seeing managers in cages above rings? Gary Hart in Houston, Texas, with the, when it was a rat cage, actually, is what we referred to it as. But it was, <laughs> I remember, man. Explain the rat cage. Help me understand the terminology here. Well, it's just, it was a cage. It was just was a cage because Gary Hart was in it. We called it a rat cage. Okay. But it wasn't big enough that, that he could stand in it. So you'd put him in it, and he would sit in it with his feet, dangling through the bars. Gary Hart, by the way, very tall human being. Yes. Yes. And 
I just always remember, man, we would hoist it up and there was a, a pulley up way up through the the drop ceiling at the top of the Coliseum. So you don't even know what the hell this thing's rigged on. But if you look up at the at the ceiling, you see like, you know, the what what are they called in the drop ceiling? What are those little squares called? Ceiling tiles. Okay, the ceiling tiles. They're they're missing all over the top of the building and shit. And this rope just disappears into the abyss up there, wrapped around something, and then the pulley is there. And you get about five guys, five or six big guys, and they pull Gary Hart up and hoist him up. And then when he gets up to the to the right position, just tie him off on the uh, top ring post. And that's the science of it. But it was to, to keep managers out, and it was effective. But, you know, once you've seen the finish that has been overused nine million times of the manager dropping the gimmick down to, to whoever his guy is and the baby face getting it and using it. And so the cage was effective. Um, you know, you, you've kind of seen it. Yeah. Um, the, the best use of, um, the cage is we, we did it with Jerry Lawler and, Lawler was up in the cage and Lawler had picked, picked his nose to get it to bleed and got a scab. And mm. then when Lawler got up and goes, no, 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 I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of heights. Lawler picked the scab and his nose started to bleed because when certain people, when they get high and they get in the, you know, certain height, their nose will bleed. And it was just ingenious that, that Lawler did that. And then there was a time that we, we put Jeff Jarrett in a cage and we pulled Jeff Jarrett up to the top of the roof and just <laughs> left him up there for a couple of matches. And you, you could hear on the, and we kept recording and Jeff was screaming so loud that we had to finally take him down because his audio was screwing up the matches we were trying to tape. Bruce Pritchard, I know you're involved. Get Bruce out. And he just, yeah. So we let him down. The good old days. The good old days. So listen, this feud with The Undertaker, man. I mean, The Undertaker and Mankind have done it all, right? So they had a boiler room brawl match at SummerSlam. They had a buried alive match. I mean, once we've, we've beat each other all over and under the building, and then we literally buried a guy. Now we're just going to have a regular wrestling match, but it's almost like the rebirth of the undertaker. So he's got a totally new look. He comes down, like he drops down from the ceiling and he's got like bat wings and a new haircut and the teardrop tattoos. I guess he killed a guy or two. Um, the match is, is good. Uh, Meltzer would even say it made great psychological sense, but he did say it was nowhere near the level that the previous matches had been. But he sums it up like this after doing boiler room matches and buried alive matches where the undertaker was all but killed. It's hard to put two guys in a regular match and get the people jazzed about it. I mean, that's probably a fair criticism, right? We're probably working backwards. Maybe we should have started with this and worked our way up to a buried alive. And I mean, but I guess he's reborn. I don't know. Talk me through this. He descended. Yes. From the heavens above. He did. Yeah, th this was what I refer to as a uh, pirate taker. Yes. He hated that, I bet. 
Oh, he hated. Oh my God, he hated it. Yeah, between Wendy and Pirate Taker, and 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 I, I <laughs> yeah, Pirate Taker. Uh, he's like, "What do you think?" I'm like, um, and he would get so mad. Um, but yeah, again, it, you know, it, it was. Who does he? He's got to come back and get get revenge, and you you've got to, you know, short of doing a decapitation match, it's you, you kind of almost have to start from the beginning all over again with Taker at this point. So, um, I thought it worked. I thought about. I don't think that Taker and Mick could have a bad match. Yeah, no, these guys. I mean, even when it's not great, it's good. Uh, and as you would imagine, mankind comes back using a foreign object, but Undertaker's going to hit the tombstone. That's it. Bear gets lowered into the ring. Of course, per the pre-match stipulation of Undertaker wins, he gets five minutes alone with the man who betrayed him this past summer. And before Undertaker can do anything to him, the executioner nails him from behind. So Taker comes back and runs executioner off. Meltzer didn't really love that. Called it a weak sequence. We know it's going to set up the undertaker and the executioner in December. And unfortunately, Terry Gord, Terry Gordy is, uh, well, his days are numbered here in the WWF, but let's talk about the look, because that's really what people remember most about this exchange and match. It's just the pirate taker, as you called him. Is this just creative services and, and, and Mr. Callaway being a good sport and saying, okay, I'll try it. Or do you remember him having some influence on the idea? And then an execution, he was just like, I was wrong. This sucked. Uh, Undertaker had a lot of influence in it and worked with people and try and come up with the different look. So he, he had, he had a lot of, he had a lot of input on it. Well, coming up next, we've got a uh, survivor series match and boy, it's a big one. We've got the debut of arguably the biggest star in wrestling history, Rocky Maivia. He's going to be teaming up with wild man, Mark Marrow, who's fresh off of a pretty hot intercontinental title feud, uh, Barry Windham, who is here as the stalker he's here with, as Bruce calls it a fresh paint of coat. And he is indeed painted up and the returning Jake Roberts, who has had quite a 1996, of course, a few months prior to this, he was the subject of the Austin 316 promo. So certainly he was important in 1996. He's going to be taking on crush. Who's got a new look and we know it's going to become a part of the nation of domination. Jerry, the King Lawler, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, who's still very much a blue blood and gold dust. Uh, Meltzer would have this to say my was given the huge push and came in early and Lawler did a great job of carrying him. My who is 24 years old, showed a ton of athletic potential and looks to have a chance to be what they want him to be, which is one of the top guys in the company, but they'd better be careful and not shove him too fast as he's not there yet. So that's Meltzer's first take on the blue chipper as Jim Ross used to call him. And time is a funny thing. We love talking about time here on the show. Rock was 24 years old then. And this show was 25 years ago. That's pretty crazy when you think about it, but what do you remember about this blue chipper and his debut as he's got his pineapple Willie haircut and the crazy, uh, outfit and just white meat, baby face one Oh one here. Right. 
Who the hell is Pineapple Willie? Well, that crazy haircut would make Frank Mir like jealous. a chia pet. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I, I that I used to refer to that. So that was my chia pet haircut, you know, at the time. And obviously we were looking for big things, you know, for the rock. I think that from day one, from the very first time we saw him, you looked at him and go, man, that's a future WWE champion. That's someone that could, he had the size, he had the charisma, he had the look, everything about him was, um, a plus. So yeah, you're looking at it, but man, that garden audience can be fickle. Yeah. They did come with the Rocky chance, but Man, he had to fight for him because he came out and it was kind of like, yeah, okay, we've seen this before. You got to, you got to impress me. You haven't done shit yet. And he came out like he was already over and rightfully so, but just takes time, takes time sometimes. And I don't know that he was, but again, you got to start somewhere. Do me a favor. You got to start with moments like this to get to where you are. So you can look back and go, boy, I remember the first match and it was not the greatest in the world. Yeah. Listen, I think that's true with everything. It evolves, you know, people DM me all the time. Hey, I want to, I want to start a wrestling podcast. You know, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And my advice is always the same. Just start doing stuff. I mean, you go back and you listen to our early something to wrestles and they were all excellent, but they won point is they evolve. You get yeah, but they were excellent from day one. We were perfect. They were chanting Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. Bruce I remember. Bruce, I remember. Bruce. Hey, so throw it in your Google machine right now. Pineapple Willie, W I L L Y not Willie with an I E, but Willie with a Y and then just click Google image. You have a keyboard. I'm, I'm looking. Yeah. I want you to see. You said, what the fuck is a pineapple Willie? Well, I didn't say it like that. Okay. Pine. P I N E A P P L E space W I L L Y image. Tell me that's not Rocky Malvia's haircut. Close. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. See, come around here questioning my pineapple williness. Well, it's a Panama city thing. How am I supposed to know this shit? Cause you've been there. Well, a long time ago. Yeah. Well, we're talking about shit that happened. I didn't go to pineapple willies should have. No, not really. All right. So, Hey, here's the what deal. Ah, just nothing you want. I mean, I guess some people say, Oh, I like the ribs. They've never had real barbecue. Anyway, point is they got, they got Wisconsin white cheddar bites. Oh, well, we'll why? Know. How has this become a goddamn commercial for pineapple willies? Cause you're talking about it and won't let me talk because about you the go match. To P- Pensacola and you you're getting a kickback on this. Aren't you? That's not true. Okay. Uh, so we are down to crush and gold dust in with my via and the fans start to get behind him here. They're chanting Rocky Rocky. And, uh, Meltzer would say at this point without a magician, like Lawler, my via looked a lot more human crush went to heart punching, but he moved gold got the blow. My via uh, pins crush with a crossbody in 218 and then pins Goldust with a shoulder breaker to win the match in 32 seconds, two stars. So the experience that Rocky got in Memphis and, and probably hanging around Memphis, maybe working with Lawler a little bit, helped him dramatically. I assume that Pat Patterson is very important in the early developmental stages here of the rock. I would say that Tom Pritchard was probably 
for sure. Highly, highly responsible for that. And then from there, yes, working in Memphis every, you know, where he was able to work every week. In addition to that, be able to do live TV every week as well. What'd you think of the shoulder breaker as a finish? That is what he's trying at least at first. It was something, and I think Jake came up with that. Uh, I think it was something he felt comfortable doing at the time. And it was different. But it wasn't something he could do to everybody. You know right. what I mean? Right. Um, Triple H here, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. It feels like he's just sort of thrown in here. You know, I know that this is the same year, 1996, that the curtain call happened, but he's fresh off of an interesting storyline. But Mr. Perfect has sort of flown the coop. I mean, Hunter can't catch a break here, right? I mean, I know he got the intercontinental title. So, so yes, he did catch a break, but still creatively, it felt like he's going to have something with Mr. Perfect. And then nope, not so fast. Yeah. Not the, not absolutely the best year for triple H. And I think that, <laughs> you know, just when it got hot, they cut it off, uh, kind of happened to him here a little bit. Coming up, Maybe it, was, it was going real good. And everything was was fine on all cylinders. We was we was feeling all funky and shit, and then and then boom, he disappeared in a puff of smoke, never to be seen again, unless you unless you get that little channel down south that nobody gets. I want to mention: go out of your way to watch the next match. There's two really great matches on this show, and this is one of them. I think it's one of my favorite matches of all time. And it feels like it's almost the forgotten match because it's overshadowed by the magic they created at the following WrestleMania, but stone cold, Steve Austin really has his coming out party against a returning Brett, the Hitman Hart. It's Brett's first match back and boy, they have a barn burner. Meltzer loved it. And so did I, uh, he gave it four and a half stars. I think this is about as good as it can get. And the observer would write. This is a textbook example of how to build a long match, a match of the year caliber performance without doing any suicidal moves. Austin came out mainly to cheers, although Hart's cheers were much louder and he was clearly the crowd favorite. Once the match started, they started with tremendous mat work with Austin's stun gun being the first hot move. The first signs of brawling came around 10 minutes for the rest of the way. The two went back and forth with big moves and near falls, turning it into a very good match. After a top rope superplex by Austin Hart, Hart caught him with a cradle for a great near fall. It was super heat at this point. The fans were chanting, let's go Hitman." After a stone cold stunner, Hart became the first to kick out of the hold. Austin went for a Texas cloverleaf, but Hart made it to the ropes. Hart went for a sharpshooter, but before it was applied, Austin made the ropes. Finally, Austin clamped on the Cobra or the million dollar dream, but Hart climbed the turnbuckles and kicked off and landed on top of Austin for the pin. It's the same finish that we saw from Roddy Piper and Bret Hart at WrestleMania eight for the intercontinental title. But after all of the weeks or months at this point that stone cold has been calling out Bret Hart and Bret finally returns. And it's where he was the man at WrestleMania 10 and, and left as world champion. This is a special moment for Brett and certainly for Austin and a fucking unbelievable match. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, I thought it was excellent. And it, it stole the show. It was, you know, when you look at the build of this and it was all built with Steve, you know, cutting promos and 
will Brett be there? Will he not? And it, and it was Steve coaxing Brett back and, you know, come on, Brett, what's going to be your answer? Hey, Brett. And it just was, this was a classic example, example of people being talked into the show. And it was, uh, a tremendous job by Steve. And this is what kind of was Steve's coming out party as well. And it was all tied together with Brian Pillman, which was brilliantly done, but you guys did a, a vignette that I want to play here and I'm going to track the audio so you can hear it, Bruce, but it's black and white. It looks like a, an old abandoned warehouse and it is just stone cold, Steve Austin running down Bret Hart. And then it finishes with uh, his theme music, which is becoming iconic at this point and a little teaser survivor series in the date. Let's take a listen here. Pink tights. What the hell is that all about, Brett? Ballet class. Sunglasses and What a load of crap. So, Brett, you're coming back to continue a legacy? Uh-huh. Stone Cold's going to make your comeback a living hell. You can start begging for some mercy you right will now. Beg for you're mercy. You're not going to find it. I think you're completely pathetic. You're the best there is, was, and ever will be. Whatever. Son, you're looking at the best there Austin is. Austin 316 rules. I will kick your pink and black ass all over the garden. I'm going to end your you legacy. You will beg for mercy. You know, Brett, the whole world knows that you quit the WWF you because you lost to Shawn Michaels. The pretty boy. The boy toy. Kick your ass back to Canada. You couldn't face yourself and you damn sure couldn't face you. Ran away in shame. You should have picked another time to come I back, ain't son. No sexy when the boy. bell rings and it's time to get down to business, I'm going to take seven years of frustration and being pissed off out on your ass. Think about it like this, Brett. You can finally go home, look yourself in the mirror, and get a little peace of mind because you will know you were indeed beaten by a real man. Tell me about that vignette. Buddy, just watching that back, I get goosebumps. It is the creation of a superstar. I mean, what a, what a series of events that has led to this for stone cold, the whole Austin three sixteen promo attacking, uh, his, his longtime friend and former tag team partner, Brian Pillman on superstars, breaking into his house with the gun, beating up people when we're doing live interviews in the studio, talking about Brett coming back, uh, calling him out on pay-per-view appearing on live wire, talking trash. And now here it is this awesome vignette and the match boy just delivered in spades. But what do you remember about those vignettes and, and how this really helped create the stone cold character? Well, it was a, it was a great job done by Steve and by David Sahadi and Chris chambers, where they just took Steve and had him out where we shot a lot of our opens and things, which was actually an abandoned warehouse. And let Steve go. Just let him talk. Let him go. And he, you know, paced and walked and talked and did all this shit and were able to put these together and voila, magic. Is this um, a more modern version of, you know, the, the way you used to introduce characters like Mr. Perfect's vignettes or the Million Dollar Man's vignettes? This isn't the same thing but it does feel like a late nineties version of 
here's how you do this. And I don't know that it was done any better for anyone else than it was here for Austin. Yeah, it, it was character enhancement. It was a way to kind of, uh, reintroduce Steve too, and introduce this stone cold character that he was working on. So it was, it was all the above, man. So it was a different way. And I think it was a very effective way that you could play a couple times during the show and they had a theme to them with the dogs barking and the chain link fence yes. and just the black that, and white, that nasty, yeah, nasty background. It was, it was pretty cool. It was gritty. It was real. It was down and dirty. It was fantastic. And of course, everyone talks about the Austin three sixteen promo. And then of course they talk about the WrestleMania 13 match, but I think a lot of people gloss over this. And don't get me wrong. I think WrestleMania 13 is arguably one of the best matches in the history of the company, but this has got to be up there. And, and it is a more traditional wrestling match, less brawling through the crowd, blood and all that, uh, of the two, do you prefer this or WrestleMania 13? I still prefer WrestleMania 13 because it was a, it was a tailed three people. You know, people often forget about a uh, shamrock being introduced yeah. at, at the match at WrestleMania. So it, it was a bigger story, but excellent. Both of them are excellent. When this match is over with, you know, this is Brett's return and, and Brett, this is sort of glossed over, but he was booked for some overseas tours and the opponent that he worked with on those uh, shows uh, during his long hiatus after WrestleMania 12 was Steve Austin. So they get to work out their kinks. They get to work out some timing, but this really is a masterpiece of a match. Do you remember how Vince felt? about Austin afterwards, uh, and, and maybe how Brett felt about his return. I mean, after really being away for so long, he just has an unbelievable performance here, but it's gotta be something going in the back of Vince's mind. Wait a minute. They were cheering Austin. When he came out, he's the heel. We're in New York city. This is Brett's town. What was Vince's take after? And, and what was Brett's take after? God damn. We got something here, pal. Yeah. Uh, it was obvious. It was just quite obvious, man. You you had a megastar there, and you had uh, you know Brett Brett coming back, and Brett made him. Sometimes when a guy like Brett, who's done everything, been everywhere, all that jazz, after he's been off for a while, and he's going to make a comeback like this, do you think it crosses his mind that okay, well now what? Let's move on. We're done with that, or does he enjoy this so much that? almost immediately when he comes through the curtain, well, we're not done. We got to keep this going because they're going to have one hell of a few through 97. Oh, definitely. I think that Brett, Brett wanted, I think if you gave Brett his choice of, of opponents at that time, who do you want to work with Brett? Just period. It would have been Steve. Well, I only asked because at the time, of course, Shawn Michaels is in the middle of his Sid storyline, but I think most people at home, myself included, we just assumed Okay, well, Sean's going to do whatever Sean's going to do, but ultimately WrestleMania 13 probably looks a lot like 12. It's going to be Brett and Sean. We know that didn't happen, and it wound up being Brett and Austin, and I think we're better for it. Wouldn't you agree? Wholeheartedly. You know, that was, it was a better story. Right. Let's get to the next match. It's just sort of there by comparison, and that's unfortunate, but it is what it is. We got... I know you hate when I say this word, the fake razor and diesel, uh, Rick Wagner and uh, Glenn Jacobs, who we know is going to be Kane. They're going to be teaming with Vader 
and the redesigned Farouk. So instead of Vader being in the main event for the world title, here he is in this outfit, uh, PG 13 of the hype men. And this is really the first sign of the nation of domination. And they're going to be taking on flash funk, Savio Vega, Yokozuna, who is as big as a house and the mystery partner, Jimmy Superfly Snuka, who just went in the hall of fame the night before. And I remember as a kid, when that music hit, it was exciting. Now, of course, when he comes out, he's 53. And at the time that felt ancient. And now we realize, well, there's a lot of guys you see on TV every week. You were 53. So, uh, age is just a number. What do you remember about Superfly coming back in here for you guys? It was New York. It was, you know, at the time looked at as a special attraction and kind of a, a feel good moment for the garden audience because Jimmy had had so many memorable moments in Madison square garden that it was an opportunity for people to get a feel that one more time. And that's, that was the intention. Well, it checked all those boxes. Uh, Yokozuna is going to be written about in the observer. Yokozuna, who looked to weigh about 720 pounds, could barely walk without blowing up. And he used a Uranagi on Vader, and Vader landed on his shoulder and and was injured to the point that he couldn't work the next night. Um, This is really the first time a lot of fans get to see Yokozuna in a while, since the SummerSlam free-for-all, probably. And he is uh, heavier than ever. You guys had to be more concerned than ever before seeing the performance here. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. It was, it was a scary, it was a scary time because you're looking at it and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, is, is he going to blow up? Is he, is he okay? Just in general and having not seen him. Yeah, it was, it was sad. Long and short of it, it was sad. Farouk has a fresh paint of coat, as you like to say. No longer the blue Spartacus-looking helmet gimmick. Now it's going to be the uh, the Nation of Domination look, so to speak. Uh, and we've got PG-13 with him. How did PG-13 come to be a part of this? PG-13 came to us from Lawler. And, you know, we were looking for uh, different a different presentation. And PG-13, man, look. I guess they had their issues, but at the same time, they were a very entertaining act and they were completely different than anything else that we had on the, on the card. The match is just sort of there. It goes to a double DQ and everybody starts swinging chairs and the match just sort of stops. Is this really more of a, Hey, we want to get the pop for Snuka and we need to show off Ron's new look and. Well, Vader's a big star and he was supposed to be, this is just more of a, let's just get them out there. And even if it has to be cut for time, we got to do something to showcase this talent. Right. And move on next. Um, do you remember Vader that night? Was he different? Was he frustrated? Was he voicing anything? Was he more difficult than normal? I mean, this was supposed to be as the rumor goes his night. And now he's just in this sort of throwaway segment. Yeah, I don't remember him being any different than than usual. I think that he, by that point, he saw the writing on the wall and accepted. He knew where he was. Well, next up, boy, you got to go out of your way to watch this. Uh, This is the second best match of the show, at least to me. It's the main event, 
and what a New York reaction this is, buddy. Uh, the fans are all about psycho Sid. He's going to come out. Fans are going to start fist bumping him. And remember he's a heel. And, uh, Shawn Michaels is of course the greatest wrestler in the world in this era. Uh, Meltzer would write this a couple of stories in this match. Michaels did an incredible job carrying Sid to probably the best match in his career. I would agree. He should be given a lot of credit for professionalism because we've seen guys on the night. They're supposed to drop the strap, just really pout and be babies about it. Killing their match. The other story was just about how much the crowd turned on Michaels during the match. It started with light booing early, but as the match went on, the booing was huge. Every time Michaels did any offense, Michaels let it affect him visibly. Even if it didn't affect his performance, as he often gave the crowd, dirty looks spit and swore at ringsiders that were booing him. And the match turned into a very good match with Michaels using flying and speed moves and Sid using power moves. They went back and forth for near falls towards the end, each teasing their big moves, but getting it stopped by the other early in the match, a cameraman got in Sid's way which was a spot that would build up the finish at the end. Sid got the camera and nailed Jose Lothario with it. Lothario took a delayed bump and began clutching his chest. And the announcers acted as if Lothario was suffering a heart attack. Michaels hit the super kick, but instead of going to pin Sid jumped out of the ring to help Jose. Sid finally got up and hit Michaels with the camera as he hovered over Lothario, threw him in the ring and pinned him after a power bomb. Michaels crawled out of the ring and began hovering over Jose with Michael selling the idea that what was happening with Lothario was a lot more important than losing the title three and a quarter stars. I mean, listen, sometimes we say, oh, we hate heart attack angles and the silliness and all that. But the sweet story that we have known for all of 96 is that Jose Lothario is this almost Mickey type character in the vein of Rocky for Shawn Michaels. And now here he is, this older gentleman attacked by this hulking giant. And he's more concerned about his, his friend than the title. And ultimately it costs him the title and these rabid New York fans, a lot of them, including Vladimir, who's sitting ringside is all about it. They think of Sid as the man and Sid has no problem reminding you he's the man, just a great match. And I agree with Dave, probably the best of Sid's career. What say you, Bruce? Great story. That was an absolutely tremendous story. It was a great story that Sid played perfectly. And Sean, man, was there for everything and made it. And even if you didn't care, which a lot of people didn't care about Jose as passionately as they cared about Sean and and everyone else, uh, you cared about Jose then because Sean cared. And that's what made it. It's even if you didn't give a shit about Jose, you cared because Sean cared and was willing to, to make that sacrifice for him. Chat me up about the reaction. Were, were you surprised? Was Vince surprised by the reaction to Sid or Sean during this match? Not really. No. Cause because Sid was getting those reactions. Sid, you know, was going out and big, impressive bastard. And people were cheering him everywhere we went. So you kind of thought that was going to happen, but we also thought that for him to, you know, do something to Jose and, and then capitalize on that, 
that that would turn him. And I, I think it did. I really think that, that people did turn on Sid after the fact. It's so historically significant, uh, and it's just, it's so well done. Go out of your way to watch those two matches. I think Brett and Austin and Sid and Sean, man, it's just about as good as it got in 1996, at least for me. And it's the first time I remember seeing a New York crowd show like a heel edge, you know, that, I mean, it feels like before this, they were just cheering the baby faces and here we. We got to see maybe, uh, we're going to regurgitate some of this white meat baby face stuff. We like the badasses. I think this is a, a, a damn near perfect pay-per-view. Don't get me wrong. There are spots throughout it that don't age well, but just my fandom, the nostalgia of it, watching it back 25 years later. Uh, and instead of just skipping around, like I had to this week, I'm going to sit down and rewatch the whole thing tonight. I, I love this show. What say you, Bruce? I love the show too. And it was good to go back because you, you think of, you know, the Montreal screw job is a, is which that was as well. It was a hell of a card as well. This is kind of like the forgotten one. Yeah. That, that just goes by the wayside that, you know, Oh yeah, no. What, what did we do then? Um, I thought it was tremendous. Really, really good shit. I want to mention too, we're, we got some fan questions and we'll wrap this one up. We're going to get out of here, but before I do. The reaction after the Brett and Austin match, we go back to the desk and you see Jr. doing some, some heavy lifting and Jr. was at his best here. I thought he did a fantastic job in that match in particular. Um, but he's just hammering home the fact that there was no ring rust with Brett. Uh, you know, Austin had Brett at his best, blah, blah, blah. And you could see Vince was like, I totally disagree. Were they off? I mean, how challenging was that from a storytelling standpoint, when you have the quote unquote boss on commentary and Jr. is there trying to sell one way, Hey, he beat him at his best. There was no ring rust. He looked as good as ever. And then you could tell that's not the direction Vince wanted to go. What do you make of that? It's called the work Connie. So that was planned ahead of time, right? I I'm going to say he had ring rust. You're going to say he didn't. Was that the same? Well, it's not necessarily planned, but it's just taking a different point of view. It's just interesting that in theory, Jr. supposed to be fresh off of being the heel and, and Vince is the baby face. So you would think Vince being the baby face commentator, the lead voice, if you will. And since Brett's the baby face, you would think he would be the one beating the drum of, Hey, Brett had no ring rust. He was great. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Uh, let's do some questions here. Lenny Bakken wants to know any idea how the relationship was at the time here in uh, November of 96 between Janetti and Sean, their relationship was, you know, it was friendly. It was good. They weren't hanging out buddies or anything like that, but they were, they were friendly. It was business. JD Shea wants to know, where did you guys get the shark cage? Sharks are us. Oh, I thought it was shark. See, sharks. Ours. No man. Cause Conrad, now you're being silly. Uh, my apologies. I guess they Sharks are us has everything shark, all your shark accessories, all your shark accessories. I see. you need a shark cage. You need shark wire. You need shark hook. Go to sharks are us. Right. It's not like shark hooks are us. Yeah. Sharks are us. Got it. Or sharks be us and shit. Oh, that's like the rival store, the spite store across the street, right? Ding, ding, ding. I heard about that. You got to have the end shit in there too. Yeah. They even put it that way in the phone book. Yes. Uh, Owen wants to know that's when you look it up and it's, it's triple a, we be sharks and shit. 
Hey, 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 so that his first comes up in the phone book. All right. Tune in next week for more early nineties phone book hacks. Uh, <laughs> Owen wants to know, was that real? I, know him. I do too. Why do you think we're one ST family mortgage? There you go. Uh, was that really, um, ultimate warriors old pyro set up for the Sid entrance pyro? Of course it was that little stick, but I like the S right. The suddenly I'm dominant as Jr. said here, S I D and sparklers, as opposed to, uh, the old ultimate warrior logo, boy, these were different days. I bet that pyro budget was a lot different in November of 96 than it was a few years later. A little bit. Uh, Drew Landry wants to know, it seems the aisle to the ring was shorter than at WrestleMania. Was this due to the setup or has MSG always been closer than expected? Well, for this particular show it was, it was the traditional setup. So it was a lot, lot shorter than what, then later on, we started going on the, uh, the far ends. Uh, Bob says, uh, Hey Bruce, hypothetically, if Austin and Hart match didn't work or get the reception, it did. Would Austin have still received his push. Did this match determine that, or was it inevitable? That is interesting to think about Bruce. What if the match wasn't great? What if it was a miss, you know, in a different time and place, we used to hear that maybe the one, two, three kid or Sean Waltman, as we know him was the measuring stick. And he would come to the back and say, Oh, he ain't got it at this point. If Brett would have came back and the match would have been a stinker and thankfully it wasn't, but if it would have been, would that have cut Austin's water off as they like to say? I don't think it necessarily would have. It might've shortened the program up a little bit, but I don't think that it would have been, Oh my God, Steve doesn't have it. Uh, cause Steve definitely had it. Well, let's talk about how things change 10 years later. It's going to be survivor series. Oh, six from Philadelphia. And that's what we'll be covering. Batista is going to win the world heavyweight title from King Booker. We've got the infamous super kick to Mike Knox for his elimination in just five seconds. John Cena is going to team with Kane, Bobby Lashley, RVD and Sabu to take on Big Show, Umaga, Finley, and MVP. Kennedy's going to take on The Undertaker in a first blood match. And we also get the promotion for December to Dismember in high gear. Uh, the company changed quite a bit in 10 years, Bruce, and we'll talk about that next week. But, hey, this weekend, it's here, man. Survivor Series 2021. The internet is a buzz. Big E, Roman, Charlotte, Becky, Something for everybody this weekend. Are you nervous, anxious, excited? What are you thinking about Survivor Series this weekend? I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited to be uh, in Brooklyn, and I think it's going to be one hell of a weekend, by God. New York City Survivor Series. It just goes hand in hand. I like that we got to talk about a New York City Survivor Series ahead of this weekend. Check it out on the Peacock Network. Bruce, I appreciate you making some time today. Uh, do you want to give a peek behind the curtain about old Brucey or should we just maybe leave uh, that for another we'll day? Just move on. Maybe another day. <laughs> All righty. Well, boys and girls, uh, tell your people you love them. And I hope you guys have a fantastic Thanksgiving. Bruce and I will be back with you next week. And we're going to try to drop it on Thursday night. That's the plan. Uh, so we can continue <laughs> our, our, our Thursday Thanksgiving tradition. Of course, these days, Bruce is busier than a one-armed paper hanger. So we'll do our best. But stay tuned, boys and girls. Survivor Series 06 is on deck right here on Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Rock on. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.